0: Welcome to the May 14th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Kings 19-21. through Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. 2 Kings 19. In yesterday's Bible reading, we observed the Assyrian royal spokesman taunting and demoralizing the citizens of Jerusalem. Word was brought to Hezekiah, and all hope seemed lost. But as we were first introduced to King Hezekiah, we were told that he was a man who feared the Lord and obeyed him. He seemed absolutely sincere, and his devotion to the Lord seemed heartfelt. So how will Hezekiah respond to this hopeless situation? How would you respond if an army had surrounded your city and essentially said, surrender or die? 2 Kings chapter 19 tells us how a godly man responded. Listen to verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the Lord's temple. So he went to seek the Lord. Uh, Here's an important spiritual principle, and this is it. There is much that we can do after we pray, but there is nothing we should do before we pray. Did you get that? Let me say it again. There is much that we can do after we pray, but there is nothing we should do before we pray. So Hezekiah wasn't content to be... uh, Frustrated in this situation, he was going to pray, but he was also not content to be the only leader praying. Uh, He wanted another very respected man to join him in desperate cries for help to the God of heaven. So he sent some of the men who had heard what the Assyrian spokesman said, he sent them to the prophet Isaiah. And yes, this is the prophet who wrote the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. So these men explained to Isaiah the unenviable situation that they were all in, and then they said, listen to verse 4, "'Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of the royal spokesman whom, this, uh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant.'" So what what Isaiah did is he sent a message back to Hezekiah and listen to what he said in verses six and seven. Isaiah said this. He said, "Go tell Hezekiah, go tell your master that the Lord has said this. Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me." This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. I am about to put a spirit in him and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. So the Lord, through his prophet Isaiah, said that there was nothing to fear. King Sennacherib of Assyria will head back home where he will die by the sword. Okay, friend, there's something we need to think about here. God has spoken through Isaiah His words are very encouraging, but he leaves King Hezekiah with a choice. Will King Hezekiah trust in the words Isaiah has said and find rest even though the circumstances have not changed? Or will King Hezekiah doubt the words and continue living in fear and defeat? This is the same choice that you and I are continually faced with when we read God's word. We may wish that we could have a prophet like Isaiah speak God's word to us, but those sentiments only reveal that we don't realize God has spoken to us through Isaiah. We have a whole book in the Old Testament that Isaiah wrote, so we read the book of Isaiah or any other biblical book, and God's Holy Spirit assures our hearts that God is giving us one of his precious promises, and we are faced with the same choice as Hezekiah. When we go through a scenario, when we are fearful, when we are anxious, when we are unsure, when any number of things are going on, when we need a right decision and we go to God's word and we read one of those precious promises, God's Holy Spirit, as it were, lifts that promise off the page and seals it to our heart. We know that God is speaking to us. Then we have a choice like Hezekiah. Will we trust the Lord's word? Or will we fret? Friend, God has meant every single word in the Bible. He will fulfill every single promise in our lives, assuming we have the right to claim the promise that we uh, have taken from Scripture. You can't just claim every single promise, it has to be one that God has specifically given to you. And the Holy Spirit. And clear, serious thinking will allow us to know whether God is speaking a word to us or not. But then it is our choice once we know what God has said in his word, what precious promise God has given to us, then it's left up to us. Will we trust in God's word and trust in the Lord or will we know that the scripture is there but continue to fret? I just want us to realize that Hezekiah would would have been comforted By Isaiah's words, but only if he trusted in them, right? Isaiah could have said all of those words, and those words could have been repeated back to Hezekiah, and if Hezekiah didn't rest in them, then he would have still continued to be fearful and be terrorized by all of the things that were going on outside of the city walls. So it's not just hearing the word, it is resting in the word, it is trusting in the promise. And I just want you to know that uh, we can find that same rest in our own lives, even as the storms of trouble are circling around us, if we have a word from the Lord, from his word, and we rest in that word by trusting God to bring it to pass. I just want to encourage you that as you're reading God's word, look for that promise or those promises that God would give to you on the pages of scripture that God's Holy Spirit says, this is for you. This one is yours and then take it and rest in it so that you can find the comfort that King Hezekiah, I believe, had when he heard and trusted in what King, uh, what Isaiah said that the Lord had said. Well, in verses 8 through 13, we read that the Assyrian spokesman left because a greater threat was made against the Assyrian king. But the spokesman didn't leave uh, without leaving some final words. He wanted the people to know that they hadn't heard the last of him. Assyria would be back to destroy Jerusalem just as they had destroyed so many other cities and regions. And so he took off, apparently leaving the army uh, there in, uh, around Jerusalem uh, for someone else to lead at that point, as it just kind of sat. Well, when we observe what we observe next is that these fresh threats from the Assyrian spokesman moved Hezekiah to even more passionate levels of praying. He wasn't merely sending half-hearted words up to heaven. He had what Isaiah had already shared with him, but this didn't solve the problem of the uh, Assyrian army out there outside of the walls. He was broken, crying out from a heart that desperately needed the Lord to hear and answer the prayer. He wanted God to resolve this problem with those uh, with the army. Okay, the king of the king of Assyria is going to go back and he's going to die by the sword, but this army is still a force to be reckoned with. Well, I'm telling you when we pray from our heart passionately, these are the sort of prayers that God loves to answer. Well, I love these next two verses. Listen to 2 Kings 19 verses 14 and 15. It says Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, Read it, and then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. So Hezekiah took the issue that he was facing, went to the Lord with it, and then unrolled it so that the Lord could read it. Of course, the Lord already knew the contents of the letter long before it was ever written. But Hezekiah's actions powerfully demonstrate that we' are to take our concerns to the Lord and pour our hearts out before him. He already knows what we're dealing with, but he wants us to talk to him about it. In fact, there may be many answers to prayer that we never received because we never asked for them, at least according to James chapter four, verse two. so as we read what happens. To be a summary of Hezekiah's prayer, we are reminded that our prayers should include praising the Lord and resting in his powerful care. We don't put our heads in the proverbial sand, but we acknowledge and identify what the real problem is. And then we call God to action, trusting that he will do what is best. In verses 20 through 34, God speaks through Isaiah Isaiah sent a messenger to Hezekiah who said that the Lord ruled sovereignly over Assyria and they would not defeat Jerusalem. But I want you to listen to the final words that the Lord revealed to Hezekiah specifically, listen for the one uh, that the Lord is doing this for. Is God answering this going to answer this request? Is God answering this request primarily for Hezekiah? or is it for the people of Jerusalem? Who is God doing this for? Listen to 2 Kings 19, verse 34. God says, I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So God said that he would answer Hezekiah's request for David's sake. That's what he ended it with. God, uh, David was a man after God's own heart simply because God had chosen to shower David with grace. And so God said, I'm going to do it for my servant David. But before then... The Lord said that I will do it for my sake. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake. The Lord is doing it for himself. Well, as you read through the Old Testament, realize that this is a major, major theme. God acts for his name's sake. And it says this repeatedly in various forms, but repeatedly in the Old Testament. He does things for His glory. In fact, you're well aware of a passage of Scripture where this language actually shows up. Listen to Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. Here it is. For His name's sake. God is the greatest being in and beyond our universe. For God to exalt something else or someone else above himself would be idolatry. He is the only being that should exalt himself since there is none greater. So we are not surprised when God acts for the benefit of his own namesake. In fact, it's right and holy for him to do so. He's God after all. Among other things, the frequency of this phrase in the Old Testament lets us know that if we want our prayers to be answered, don't be self-centered. It's okay to pray for your concerns. Hezekiah prayed for his concerns. Hezekiah needed safety. Hezekiah needed to be rescued. But ultimately, make your prayers God-centered. Ask yourself, questions like this how will my prayer request demonstrate god's goodness how will the answer that i'm asking god for how will it bless the lord or glorify the lord or be for the good the benefit of the lord when you get that answer then pray that way those are the prayers that god really listens to after all i mean even think about the Sermon on the mount in matthew chapter is it 6 verse 33 um, in that passage, it says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek it first. I'm telling you that if we are God centered, then God is free to be us centered. In, in, uh, you know, in a sense, in a sense. In the final verses of 2 Kings 19, we read that the Lord killed 185,000 men in the Assyrian army that were camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. This was apparently most of the Assyrian military force in that area, and King Sennacherib returned to Nineveh and was assassinated by his own two sons. Another son, Esarhaddon, another son of Sennacherib, he actually became king of Assyria. (music) 2 Kings 20 The short story we were invited to in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20 is theologically fascinating, and let's talk about it. Listen to verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became terminally ill. The prophet Isaiah son of Amos came and said to him, this is what the Lord says, set your house in order, for you are about to die, you will not recover. So this is uh, straightforward, as as straightforward as you can get. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, said that Hezekiah needed to prepare for his death because it was going to happen shortly. What did Hezekiah do? He's a godly man. He loves the Lord. So what was his first response? Listen to verses 2 and 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. So he's probably laying there in his bed. So Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Verse 3, Please, Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. His specific request is is not given, but we're led to believe that Hezekiah was asking to live longer. For whatever reason, he wasn't ready to die yet. But the Lord had already said that he would die shortly. The words of the Lord through Isaiah were emphatic. You will not recover. That's what he said. Well, the Lord has spoken. There appeared to be no use in praying, but Hezekiah prayed. So what did the Lord do? Had the Lord essentially backed himself into a corner so that he could not respond to Hezekiah's sincere prayer for healing? Listen to verses 4 through 6. Isaiah had not yet gone out of the inner courtyard when the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord God of your ancestor David says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Look, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the Lord's temple. I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you and this city from the grasp of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Friends, God had previously said that Hezekiah would live only a short time and would not recover, and then Hezekiah prays, and then God tells him that he will recover and live 15 more years. Theologically, I'm left scratching my head. How can a God who doesn't change appear to change his mind in response to a godly man's prayer? Well, I've discovered the joy that can come when I realize that there are certain things in Scripture that I just cannot understand, but I believe them anyway. And when I read this story, I'm reminded that prayer is powerful because it reaches the very heart of God. It may even seem that things are set and prayer would be futile. Yet we should pray like Hezekiah anyway, because we just never know how God may respond, even miraculously, to our heartfelt petitions to heaven. Well, then we read that Isaiah called for a lump of pressed figs to be applied to Hezekiah's infected wound. Whether this was medicine at work or was simply a miracle isn't clear. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it tells me that sometimes God uses medicine and other things as the ways in which he answers prayer. If a dear loved one is sick and in the hospital and you are praying for their healing, also pray that God would use the medical personnel, the medical procedures and medicines to bring healing if that is his will. Just as the lump of pressed figs may have been used for medicinal purposes, so God already said, I'm going to heal you, but then the pressed figs were used as the means to bring healing, so also pray that God would use the, the medicines and procedures and personnel to bring about healing. Uh, don't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to see what they do, and if they can't answer my, you know, if they can't make me better, then I'm going to pray. No, you pray that God would use them them as the means to bringing healing. Well, in verses 8 through 11, we read of a miracle that God performed to assure Hezekiah that he would be made well. We aren't sure how this happened, though, the shadow moving 10 steps Did the earth's rotation get altered? Did the sun move? Was there another explanation for how God miraculously miraculously did this? We don't know. We'll have to ask the Lord when we get to heaven how he did this. I don't have an answer. Well, when we get to verses 12 through 19, we read of some envoys from Babylon who came to Hezekiah with gifts and letters. Assyria was a major world power. Babylon? Babylon? was a long distance away, and Hezekiah did not perceive them to be a threat at all. They were just a small power at that time. So he showed them everything in his treasure house, his armory, his palace, and anything else of worth. What did not Hezekiah do on this occasion that he had previously done? He did not pray. He did not seek the Lord. Instead, he saw an opportunity to give expression to his pride by showing off all of his wealth to envoys of a nation that was so far away as to not be considered a threat, at least as far as he was concerned. Yet when Isaiah heard about it, he was incensed. He made it clear that there was coming a day when everything Hezekiah showed to those envoys would be carried off to Babylon. Isaiah even said that some of Hezekiah's own descendants would be taken captive like those in Israel, and they would be carried off to Babylon. So what did Hezekiah do when he heard this? Did he pray as he had done so often before? Would he seek the Lord's forgiveness? Would he pray that God would turn from his wrath and not take his descendants to Babylon? We're disappointed when we realize that he did not pray. He was merely thankful that God's judgment wouldn't come during his lifetime. Just listen to 2 Kings 20, verse 19. When Hezekiah, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, "'The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good,' for he thought, "'why not if there will be peace and security during my lifetime?' Everything in us is crying out for Hezekiah to pray, pray for his descendants, pray for the nation of Judah, but he doesn't. In a few chapters, we will read about another king of Judah, a man named Josiah, another king that I greatly respect. He will essentially hear the same thing. He will hear that his descendants will be carried off into captivity, but he doesn't merely sit back and thank the Lord that it's not going to happen during his lifetime like Hezekiah. He takes action, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. This chapter ends with the death of a man who led so well, but ended poorly. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 21 Hezekiah rested with his ancestors and his son Manasseh became king in his place Friend let's not merely be content to run our race well let's determine by the lord's grace to finish well 2nd kings 21 Now that Hezekiah has died, his son will take over, but he's not going to be a good king. There will be a few good moments, but he will primarily be known as a wicked monarch. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. Well, after going through a list of the evil things he did, we read of yet another king of Judah who killed his own children as an act of perverted worship. Just listen to verse 6. He sacrificed his son in the fire. That means he burned him alive. He sacrificed his son in the fire, practiced witchcraft and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. I'm telling you, Manasseh was wicked and encouraged his people to follow in his footsteps. That's why we must also realize That competence is not the only thing we need in leaders, not just church leaders, but I'm talking about state leaders, city leaders, county, uh, federal leaders, In everyone who is in a position of leadership. We ought not just desire them to be a person of competence. We also must demand character, not just competence, but also character because as people watch the leader, they will eventually follow in his or her footsteps. In uh, verses 10 through 15, we read that the Lord, through his servants, the prophets, said that because of Manasseh's evil and because he had caused Judah to follow in his wickedness, destruction was coming upon Judah. But when we realize that Manasseh's Manasseh reigned for 55 years, we hear something else in God's warning. We hear of God's patience. He isn't jumping quickly into judgment upon Israel, upon Judah. He's warning them. He's calling them to realize that they are living in such a way as to justify his anger at them. Essentially, he's giving them an opportunity to repent. Multiple years of opportunities to repent. Friend, this is who our God is. He does not delight in judgment until it is time to do so. Instead, we read that he is completely patient and desires repentance just listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote about the Lord and his patience. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, here it is, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is why the second half of the Old Testament is solely written by the prophets. If, if you were to take the Old Testament and open it up in the middle, then you wouldn't have to flip too far to the right before you're in the prophets. And when you look at how much of the Old Testament was designated to the prophets, we're talking about Jeremiah, we're talking about Ezekiel, we're talking about Isaiah and Daniel, we're talking about Hosea and Joel, we're talking about all of these men that spoke this was they represented years and years and years and years and years of God speaking to his people calling them to repentance. God did not want to punish them, but he as a just and good God must punish lawbreakers. And so this is why so much of the Old Testament is just filled with the words of prophets because they were constantly calling out for God's people to repent, but most of the time they refused. Again, listen to what Jesus said about this. And when you listen to this familiar verse, realize that it isn't saying that the angels are filled with joy. It's something else or someone else. Listen to Luke 15, 10. I tell you, Jesus said, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. This doesn't say that there is joy with the angels. It says there is joy in the presence of God's angels. So who is happy in the presence of the angels in heaven? Who is happy when one sinner repents? I'm telling you, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. That's who's happy. Of course, the angels are happy, but this verse is telling us that Jesus is happy. This is the God that we serve, Yes, he talks about his anger and shows his anger, but it's only after his patience has run out and he is long suffering. He is uh, is a God that does not quickly get angry. He's got a long fuse and he's constantly reaching out and giving people opportunities to repent. This is the God that we serve. 55 years of Manasseh's reign was 55 years that the people had, the king had, to turn from their sinful ways. Well, Manasseh's 55-year reign came and went. It's as if his life was merely a vapor. It was here and then it was gone. Listen to verse 18. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in the garden of his own house, the garden of Uzzah. His son Ammon became king in his place. So let's get introduced to the next king of Judah. And it's going to be brief, his reign. Um, by the way, you already realize that the writer of Second Kings will no longer refer to a king in Israel, right? It's only the kingdom of Judah. We're not referring to a king in Israel anymore. The writer's not talking about that. And we know why. Because Israel is gone. Thousands upon thousands of people have died. And many more have been forcibly taken into captivity. Listen to verses 19 and 20 as we get to know briefly this new king of Judah. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, his daughter of Heraz. She was from Jotbah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. So we read of yet another wicked king in Judah, but why did he reign for only two years? What incident cut his life short? Well, listen to verses 23 and 24. Ammon's servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his own house. The common people killed all who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son, Josiah, king in his place. So King Ammon's servants assassinated him, and then the common people Killed the assassins. I mean, it's just death upon death. But then we read of a breath of fresh air. Then we read that his son, Josiah, Ammon's son, becomes king. I'm telling you, he is probably my all time favorite king of Judah. And we're going to talk about him tomorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, it's so easy to see sin in others. We can spot it so quickly and despise it in our hearts. Yet the same sins are much harder to see in ourselves and we tend to justify them when they're inside of us. In your grace, Lord, give us the ability to see sin in our lives and to hate it. In fact, help us, Lord, to kill it wherever we see it in our hearts. We wanna enjoy you and pass on a lively faith to our descendants and all of those we come into contact with. We don't want to be like these evil kings of Israel and the evil kings of Judah that as they followed their own passions and as they did whatever they wanted to do, disobeying you, they not only corrupted themselves, they corrupted others. Help us not to be a source of curse, cursings for others, for them to be objects of your wrath and your judgment. But Lord, instead, help us to take your word so seriously and to love you supremely. We wouldn't just be Pharisees, just obeying the word, at least externally, but that we would do it from our heart, out of a heart that loves you and is so grateful for your goodness to us and in so doing to be a blessing to our descendants and for all that we come into contact with. We do pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at FBCPolkCity.com. See you tomorrow.